Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by Wealthbar. Whether you've got $1,000 or a $1 million, Wealthbar makes accessing professionally managed investments and financial advice ridiculously easy. Skip the hold music and paperwork and sign up in minutes at wealthbar.com canadaland. You'll get a $100 fee credit. Once again, the place to go is wealthbar.com slash CanadaLand for more offer details. From CanadaLand, this is Oppo. I'm Jen Gerson in Calgary, and today we're bringing in a special guest host. I'd like everybody to welcome fellow Calgarian Zane Velji. Zane, could you tell everybody about yourself? Well, I mean, this is the opportunity I've been waiting for is a long diatribe on my past. Um, campaign strategist, I guess, is the easiest way to explain who I am. I uh, worked on previous campaigns for Mayor Nenshi here in Calgary, uh, the mayor of Calgary, and recently the, uh, the NDP campaign for Premier Rachel Notley. So campaign strategist, community person, part-time pontificator. Thanks for having me on. Today we're going to be talking about the Liberals' plan to ban 1,500 scary-looking guns, the CPC leadership race, because apparently that's a thing that's actually still happening, racism, and a guy named Derek Sloan. Zane, is there anything you need to disclose on that list? Nah, nothing right now, just the, the political stuff I've mentioned, so... I think you're trying to peg me down. And listen, I know I have big shoes to fill, but I know no one is wearing shoes or pants or anything these days. So I presume that I am filling a position in your mind, but I think we're going to have quite a vibrant discussion. Good. All right. Let's begin. So in the midst of a pandemic and a few days after a devastating shooting spree in Nova Scotia, and while parliamentary oversight is severely limited as a result of that pandemic, the Liberals unveiled a list of about 1,500 guns that will be banned. It's sort of been deemed the assault rifle ban, even though it includes a bunch of sort of odd bits and ends, including, for example, like missile launchers and bolt-action rifles. 
Now, there is no one in Canadian media whom I trust more to talk about guns than Matt Gurney. Gurney is the head of the opinion section at the National Post. He's been talking about guns and rifles and gun control for many, many years. So I just wanted someone to go over the nuts and bolts of what this ban entails and what makes sense about it and what doesn't. Well, I mean, let's run through just for a second what's actually been proposed. It's 1,500 guns true, but it's actually really 11. And Mm -hmm. what I mean by that is that it's sort of like saying, we banned three cars today. And then what it actually is is banning one model of car, but with like three different trim models. So there are variants of, of different kinds of guns. The AR-15 is an example where it's being manufactured by like a bajillion different companies under license. And each one of those counts as a different model. It really shouldn't, mm. but it does. So really, it's 11 guns. They are all semi-automatic rifles of various calibers. And most of them, not all of them, but most of them have some link to a high-profile mass shooting. And honestly, that's about it. That's the only thing that really binds them together. There are guns that I expected to see included in the ban that weren't. There were guns I didn't expect to see included in the ban that were. So I'm not honestly sure why these 11 were chosen. I mean, the AR-15, I think everybody expected to see that be on the list. And it's also a very popular one in Canada. There's there's at least 83,000 of them that are known, and I would personally suspect it's probably actually a lot more than that. Um, the gun has a bad reputation, but it's not unusually lethal compared to a lot of guns that were not included in the ban. In fact, I would say it's less lethal than some of the guns that were included in the ban. The other thing that's important to note is that it's not actually a ban. Anyone who currently owns one of these guns is going to keep it. And the uh, the exact details of this have not yet been worked out because right now what the liberals have done is they've used kind of executive regulation instead of parliamentary legislation. So everything is going to need to eventually be confirmed by parliament. But what they are proposing and what they're acting under the assumption they'll be allowed to do this is that anyone who currently owns one of these guns is going to be allowed to keep them. There may be more restrictions on whether or not you can use them at a a shooting range or something, but they're not actually taking them away here, which kind of begs the question, is this really a ban then? Like, it's a sales ban. No one will be buying new ones, according to what's been proposed. But if this is a public safety issue, if that's the argument, right, that, oh, these things are too dangerous to leave in the hands of Canadians, well, it kind of makes you wonder why they're all being left in the hands of Canadians. So, Zane, what are your thoughts on this gun ban and why it's being brought out, and particularly why now? Yeah, I mean, listen, Jen, there is a school of political thought, and I think I would be revising what the most elementary political slogan is that I've ever heard, which is, let no crisis go to waste. And what you've been seeing across the board politically is that this time of crisis People are much more concerned about safety, security. Uh, Money itself is now cheap and potentially not valuable because we're throwing billions of dollars out the door. So a assault rifle sort of ban kind of has this cloud cover of COVID right now, which is that people are a little bit distracted. They've got a greater appetite. Money is free-flowing and cheap to, to effectively throw out the door as a government. And let's be clear, this will be very expensive because there's a voluntary buyback component to it as well. So right now is a perfect sort of cloud cover for the Trudeau government to throw it out there. The thing I find interesting, however, is, is I think the government here 
It was not just using COVID as cloud cover. And of course, on the heels of the Nova Scotia tragedy, I'm not going to dismiss that as being a core justification. Very similar to what we saw, for example, in New Zealand post-Christchurch. You know, their prime minister uh, used that uh, incident, said no more, and actually had the legal authority to say no more, unlike what we've seen in the States where thoughts and prayers are offered and there's no way to tear down that Second Amendment. Uh, But what the government did here, I thought was really smart which is they set a political bear trap for their critics. Because when they put out this assault rifle ban, they had a bunch of people, including, you know, conservative leaders, Peter McKay, Doug Ford, others in that movement come out and say, well, it's not these guns that are the ones killing people on the streets of Toronto or that are part of the increased street violence. And then the Trudeau government had a response, which was, you know what, you're right. And now we're seeing the process underway for the municipal legislation on, on handguns going forward. So this could be much further reaching than we realize right now. And I think the Trudeau government has played really smart politics, uh, not just using this COVID situation to, to pass it through when money is cheap and time is, is abundant in that sense, but also anticipating their critics and now being able to execute on, on the next step as well. See, my read on this is less that it's a bear trap and more like it's a dance. So like there's a lot of stuff on this list that To me, the list reads like a gun ban put together by and for people who don't understand anything about guns, because there's stuff on there that's really only there because it's got a bad reputation. And there's lots of stuff that's not on there, like, for example, the SKS, which is, you know, just as scary and evil looking as the AR-15, for example. That's not there because it just doesn't come up in the news as much. So, like, this is a very, very theatrical ban to me. And my sense from gun owners themselves is that they're mostly just really annoyed by this because like so much of what the governments do on guns it's really based more on optics than logic like they're not picking guns because they're necessarily the most lethal guns or the most dangerous guns they're picking guns because they've been used in previous shootings or because they look scary and badass and when you have like a big list of 1500 parts listed like this it looks really impressive what will happen to people who are are fans of semi-automatics like the like the Air 15 which is a very popular gun is that they're just going to switch to different kinds of semi-automatics but the reason why I, I don't know if I necessarily buy the trap analogy of this is because the liberals are doing what the liberals do like they're playing right to their base right to their strengths by going for a ban like this and the conservatives are going to respond by doing exactly what they do and then pointing out where this ban doesn't make sense why it's illogical you know focusing on an emphasis for property rights you know you can't arbitrarily strip back property rights because you don't like something and both of these parties are going to be doing exactly the same thing with this with this little list and that they're both just going to be fundraising off of it. Like the liberals are going to get tons of money off of the ban and the conservatives are going to get tons of money off of the opposition to the ban. And like we'll see actually what that ban looks like in a couple months or years when it actually manages to find a way to roll its way through parliament and, a, and an actual debate. But, you know, the liberals have done this before where they've come, if you'll excuse the pun, guns ablazing with like these strong gun control measures. And then when it actually kind of makes its way through the policy meat grinder, what they come out with is a very uh, slightly tweaked version of our actual existing gun laws. So I'd be very curious to see how these how many of these guns actually manage to stay banned in the long run and under what conditions and and how that's going to work, because I think it's it's probably not going to be as impressive as it looks like today. Well, so riddle me this, because I actually don't know if if I believe this point I'm about to say, but I want to throw it out there, which is Do you think that this is them throwing out a trial balloon to see the appetite for the Canadian public on something like this, to see how far they can go? Because 
they do have that cloud cover of COVID right now where people's, you know, enhanced sort of uh, concern about their own safety, their security, this mantra of we're together and we should like depoliticize things and read the room, Peter McKay, what are you talking about, right? Those sort of criticisms would not happen in peace times. So they've got that cover. So is this a way for them to say, let's throw it out here and see what else we can get? But let's not forget, this is a campaign promise, right? So they are following through on a campaign platform promise. They're just doing it now while testing the appetite of the Canadian public. And I think we're going to be, in my case, pleasantly surprised as to seeing how willing the Canadian public is to let the scope creep of this particular piece of, I don't even know if we can call it legislation considering how it's going to be passed, but this new ban, I think we're going to be quite surprised as to the appetite the Canadian public has. In very broad, abstract terms, this has 80%, four out of five Canadian support. I would not be surprised that as they start increasing the scope to handguns and other things, that that support kind of maintains itself in that same domain. And they may be able to, quote unquote, get away with it with the most comprehensive gun ban that we've seen in our history, because the time and the money and the appetite of the public is just so different than it has been before. Yeah, I think that's actually a really interesting question of strategy. I mean, if they're expecting that uh, you know, this pan-partisan unity is going to hold in the face of this particular approach, I think it will not and has not. I mean, I think you already sort of see conservatives um, starting to bark back at this sort of stuff. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if you see gun owners mobilize against this kind of silly list for exactly that reason, because it becomes the thin edge of the wedge, right? And if they don't stand up against an AR-15 ban, well, they're going to come for my target pistols next, you know what I mean? And they very so, well uh, could, right? Like, that's the thing. And they very, uh, Yeah, they absolutely yeah. very well could. It wouldn't surprise me in the least. Zane, I think you're actually probably pretty right. I think the liberals sort of see this as an opportunity to uh, uh, start a wider spread handgun ban. Again, this is really about making people feel better about the idea of there being fewer guns. I don't think it's going to make any difference to public safety. But you know what? Maybe that doesn't matter if you just don't want more guns. Yeah, and I actually agree with you on that. I think that's the point of agreement, which is to say, I think we're in the first innings of this particular conversation on guns. Uh, and the question I have is, and that I'll be watching for, is how much capital and how much oxygen the Trudeau government wants to spend on this, right? If they find pushback on the, on the handgun ban, are they just going to be like, assault rifles was it, that's all we kind of promised on that side of things, check mark on the campaign promise, or are they going to spend the oxygen and capital to keep pushing forward? And I feel like right now, I agree with you, it's largely symbolic. Not many people own these type of particular assault rifles that we are talking about. But when we then kind of go into what a second phase could look like with the handguns and the stuff that might happen on the municipal side of things, that's where I think the conversation gets quite serious and becomes very much about uh, policy and political will. So the point we're trying to make here is that you should definitely stock up on handguns and your quote unquote assault rifles now, because it looks like all of these things are going to come in with grandfather clauses. So, is know, that the not point actually... we are trying to make? Uh, <laughs> uh, no, because I mean, that's the other thing too. Is One that of these... us is trying to make that point. These aren't actual bans at all. If you actually already own them, I mean, according to what's been released so far, uh, you, you are going to have them grandfathered in. And of course, there's a practical yeah. reason why these grandfather clauses exist, because, you know, chances are the Canadian government would have to shell out millions, if not billions of dollars to buy back all of this property oh, yeah. that oh, yeah. is currently ex in existence. So a grandfather clause is a much more economical way of doing it for them. But point being, you know, uh, if, if you are inclined to get one of these guns, really now's the moment. <laughs> oh God, Jen, why am I associated with this podcast? <laughs> I'm going to get. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You in so much trouble. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by Wealthbar. Whether you've got $1,000 or a $1 million, Wealthbar makes accessing professionally managed investments and financial advice ridiculously easy. Look, when the market is down, people get anxious about their investments. And that's understandable, but that's why it's important to get the advice of a financial professional. They'll help ensure that you've got the right investments for your financial goals and be there to help you make better financial decisions now and in your future. Wealthbar offers professional financial advice to all clients, regardless of how much they have to invest. They'll work with you to build a customized financial plan or answer any questions you have about your money. You can get advice from one of their certified financial planners directly from their app. Skip the hold music and paperwork and sign up in minutes at wealthbar.com slash CanadaLand. You will get a $100 fee credit. Once again, the place to go is wealthbar.com slash CanadaLand for more offer details. Zane? Yeah? The Conservatives are trying to replace Andrew Scheer, right? Uh, it sounds like they are, Jen. Yeah. They canceled that leadership race because of the pandemic, and there was a whole big drama about that that no one cared about. And then now they're starting the leadership race again, right? Yeah, it's like it's been this on again, off again relationship with the leadership race for the conservatives. And their level of decisiveness has been abstract at best. And the whole campaign has been so terrible that the pandemic is the only blessing of the campaign. Yeah, sure. Let's say that because it has gone from being a race where you had a front runner who was trying to lock up a sure thing to now being a race where two fringe candidates have just entered out of the blue and are dominating the entire, I'd say, oxygen coverage of this race, even though it's not getting a lot. And as much as they'd hope, I'd, I'd imagine the conservatives broadly, that is. But these two people with Lewis and, and more specifically Sloan are now dominating not just the coverage, but frankly, pulling some of their competitors, including Peter McKay, further to the right to talk about things like bathroom bills, etc. It has gone wacky. Just explain to me. OK, I'm trying to like wrap my head around this. So Derek Sloan is like this marginal, nobody's heard of, but still sits in parliament. He's a non-existent figure with no real like leadership potential or prospect. And he said something really stupid. Teresa Tam, uh, we sent an email out today asking, does she work for Canada or for China? And I encourage you to read that email. There's some interesting information in there. Derek Sloan puts out this attack on uh, Dr. Teresa Tam. Basically, I'm not going to read the whole letter, but I think sort of the key quote is at the end here, where he says, but instead we got Dr. Tam, who dutifully repeats the propaganda of a CCP government obsessed with political control and saving face. She does this because she's involved with an organization, the World Health Organization, which is effectively controlled by that government. Okay, so let's pick apart what the problem is here with this, because, I mean, I don't think it's illegitimate to criticize Dr. Theresa Tam. I do think that the, the Public Health Agency of Canada has, has made some errors in the early stages of this outbreak. And I don't think it's wrong to point that out. What I do think is way over the line is sort of implying that uh, Dr. Tam is sort of enthralled to the, the Communist Party of China, particularly when you are in an environment where there's a lot of anti-Chinese, anti-Asian sentiment going around and a lot of an attempt to sort of scapegoat 
uh, China and Chinese people for the COVID-19 virus. Yeah, I mean, does that yeah, make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, listen, this is this is racist, right? This is outright a mm-hmm. racist individual who is whistling extremely hard, blowing very hard on this dog whistle uh, to generate attention for himself. And we've fallen into the trap of giving this also ran the attention he doesn't deserve. And he's using these tactics of, you know, you can call it artful racism. It's racism to go after our our public health official in this manner, to not apologize, to double down, to say he's done nothing wrong, to say that there's a base of people that agree with him. This is politics 101 for how to run a fringe candidate. And he's following that playbook of saying something totally noxious and extreme and then having people chase their tail and shaking their fist at him for doing so and then generating more airtime and generating more controversy around it. So I want to dismiss this guy for what he is. He's a sitting MP, sure. I really hope the dude's out of caucus soon, but it's an outright racist attack against a fellow Canadian against anyone. And Jen, to your other point, this is in a moment where, where a recent poll came out that said one in five Canadians would not be comfortable sitting next to a person of Asian descent if they weren't wearing a face mask. This is kind of perpetuated the already existing systemic racism we have in these countries, specifically to East Asians, that I don't think has been talked about enough. So if there is a silver lining to this, let's first and for all, like, you know, dismiss Derek Sloan as being anyone worthy of our time. And secondly, address some of these conversations that are long overdue around racism against our, our fellow Canadians, specifically of East Asian descent. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me because, of course, so Derek Sloan puts this out. And of course, the news cycle then metastasizes on it. Yes. Because then the conversation becomes, well, is Andrew Scheer going to condemn the statement? Will he be kicked out of caucus? And then it kind of becomes Every single conservative who then sort of condemns the the statement then furthers the news cycle one step further. So, I mean, you know, if your goal is solely to use racism to get more attention for yourself within the leadership race, it's absolutely effective. But one of the things that you said I think was really interesting is the degree to which stuff like this shifts the Overton window for the leadership race overall. Yeah. So now, you know, Sloan is, of course, no closer to becoming leader. But now the kind of the incentive for O'Toole or McKay to strike back with something even harder sounding, but maybe a little less racist, but harder sounding, um, has now gone up because it's been so effective for Sloan. So, you know, we've seen, for example, from McKay, uh, like he put out this um, fundraising email that basically uh, attacked O'Toole for voting for a quote unquote bathroom bill. Yeah, that's right. Uh, right. So so using very American style culture war transphobic language um, in order to uh, attack his opponent, right? And to try and undercut O'Toole's sort of presumably further right, more reactionary supporters from him. So, you know, the whole race is just devolving into something intensely icky from what I can see. There's no ideas being talked about here. Like, there's no policy. None of these, I don't get a sense from any of these leaders that they have a sense of what kind of um, Canada that people want to build coming out of this pandemic at all. And you know what, Jen, the conservatives could have prevented this. They had the whole notion of an accidental leader in Andrew Scheer last time when it was supposed to be the Maxime Bernier coronation party. And what ended up happening was their process happened to them. And right now, when we look at what is happening in the conservative leadership race, it can simply be explained by their process, Hmm. which is that they're having a ranked balloting system. So what's going to end up happening, right? So in fourth place will be Derek Sloan, the ulcer ran that I want to dismiss out of our zeitgeist completely, okay? So his votes are then going to go to the third place candidate, this Toronto lawyer, uh, Leslie Lewis, right? Who's also socially conservative. 
The question then becomes, and I think John Ibbotson was talking about this very much more articulately than I, is where do her votes go? If she's the then gatekeeper of these hard right, socially conservative votes, Erin O'Toole seems like the natural competitor. And what happens? Peter McKay, who's supposed to win this thing, right, quote unquote, who's supposed to have a coronation himself, now has Aaron O'Toole coming through the middle, very similar to Andrew Scheer, last readership race. Mm-hmm. So that's the reason he's running to the right, is that he knows that the base of the conservative voter and their mail-in ballot will be based on social conservatives. And so the, the stranglehold that social conservatives hold within the party versus what they hold in the broader public is disproportionate. It is so disproportionate. And, and that, so what that raises such an interesting conversation about minority block vote. Yes, right? yes, yes. And how effective it is with if, if, if you have like a very solid, committed block of I mean, it doesn't matter if we're talking religious minorities, ethnic minorities, minority block voting works exactly the same way every every time. If you have a unified block of people, a minority group within um, a party, that minority group, if it stays together, can hold absolutely disproportionate sway within that party and then by extension in the country. So it's a fascinating dynamic to watch. And let me layer on one more component that would help a minority block vote right now, which is the entire campaign is now online. So the resources that you would need Mm -hmm. to mobilize people across the country have to be in certain locations to kiss hands and shake babies. Now what you need is a smart person on your campaign to understand digital targeting, to understand what language inflame, what key messages inflame, create private groups, get into those conversations and chats. You just need the loudest, most activist group of people online to then convert into a mail-in ballot. And you know what? That's much easier than showing up at a convention or having to show up across the country. So I actually think that Derek Sloan, Leslie Lewis, and Aaron O'Toole will outperform. Uh, Do I still think it's Peter McKay's to lose? Yes, I do. But the dynamics that we're just chatting about right now is what could lead to a much more active, even though they have got disproportionate support already, a much more active socially conservative base in this race. Okay, but what you just said makes me think that maybe we're picking on the social conservatives a little bit too much. Because, I mean, when we're talking about social conservatives, we're talking about people who have uh, traditionalist or conservative religious views. And I don't see a lot of this stuff necessarily... I mean, there's a bit of a Venn diagram here, but is this social conservatism or is this just sort of populist reactionary-ism? You know what I mean? Like, like there's like there's a, there's a Venn diagram there where, where you got social conservatives on one side and there's an overlap between the sort of populist reactionaryism. But I, I just made up that term. I'm so smart. Um, but I don't think they're the same group. They may not be the same group. Let's just say they can distill themselves into a couple of neat buckets. But do they start at the same value system? And do they ultimately on a multiple choice? No, but, but, no, no, no. I'll, I'll, but here's the question. On a multiple choice question with four people, do they generally lean in the same direction? So while in their core, they might be more textured and nuanced than us labeling them as, as broadly being socially conservative, politics is a multiple choice question, not a fill in the blanks. And they got four choices in front of them. Two of them are legitimate. Two of them are going to be also rands. But this is what's going to end up happening is that they're going to place their support in roughly the same spot that that's someone who identifies as social conservative would. So you would say that even if the the value systems are are distinct, it doesn't really matter if, if they're at the end of the day voting for the same person. I think they're close enough, and I think you're seeing a combination of what's what's the okay. base and what propels the second concentric circle. The base is probably social conservative. The concentric circle around them is probably a reactionary populist or a or an fu sort of vote to the to the establishment. I think that goes into the same bucket. I mean, when we look at some of the reactionary populists that have won, they had a small base, and it was a second and third ring around them that were there for varying reasons, but they took them in and they and they welcomed them home. 
it's an interesting point. I just don't want to fall into the trap of just saying, you know, uh, social conservatives and, and using that as a catch-all, because I think that, that um, the conservative supporters are, are much more varied and nuanced than just, you know, what we would normally just consider social conservative. I think, I think there's way more to the picture than that. I'm just cautious about, I'm cautious about not saying like, you know, all social conservatives believe this and all social conservatives um, uh, are support this candidate, because I don't think that's true. I would grant that. And I think I think they've got textured views, nuanced views about why they think about what they think about, where those values come from. One of the most undertold stories, I think, in the Canadian public, uh, especially relating to political voting blocks, is a lot of multicultural and minority populations consider themselves to be socially conservative because of either their religious or cultural yeah. roots. And I think that's a fascinating conversation to have. And they're we... also, they're also, for example, like church groups um, that held uh, very, very conservative views in terms of personal belief and personal conduct, but who would habitually vote progressive left parties because they, they don't necessarily want those personal beliefs imposed on society as a whole. So I don't, I don't want to fall into the trap of like demonizing all people who hold religious views is what I'm saying which is what I think we're talking about when we talk about social conservatives. I understand that, you know, and, and I think part of that is is based on kind of my own experience, right? Being a Muslim man, being counted as as part of a block rather than an individual is hella annoying, right? Because mm. you never have your own mm. autonomy. You're just considered to be someone who's who falls in line with wherever the direction of, you know, your religious leadership group goes. And have I ever voted that way in my life? No, it never has happened, right? I'm my own person. So you're going to see that. But do I fall in line with the general value systems I grew up with, even though mine might be more textured? Probably. For Oppo this week, we'll be back again in two weeks. Get in touch at oppo at canadalandshow.com or find us on Twitter at oppocast. This episode was produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt, and the theme music is by Nathan Burley. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.